Hello and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I am Yara Asi, non-resident Palestine fellow at the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Today is Wednesday, February 7th, 2024, and I am delighted to be here with Nathan Thrall. Nathan, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Um, Pleasure is mine. Nathan Thrall, of course, is the author of A Day in the Life of Abed Salama, Anatomy of a Jerusalem Tragedy, which was published in October 2023 and has been named a Best Book of the Year by The New Yorker, Time, The Economist, The New Republic, and The Financial Times, and was also selected as a New York Times Book Review Editor's Choice. Congratulations. His previous book, The Only Language They Understand, Forcing Compromise in Israel and Palestine, was published by Metropolitan in 2017. His essays, reviews, and reported features have appeared in the New York Times Magazine, The Guardian, The London Review of Books, and The New York Review of Books, and have been translated into more than a dozen languages. He spent a decade at the International Crisis Group, where he was director of the Arab-Israeli Project and has taught at Bard College. Originally from California, he lives in Jerusalem. And I really wanted to talk to Nathan um, about this book because I thought, A, it was very poignant and powerful telling of life in the West Bank, and also I think can help illuminate some of the structures and devastation that we're seeing today. Uh, so I'm really excited for this conversation. Uh, you know, Nathan, this is such an affecting story and to be honest, it took me a bit of time to muster the courage to read the book because I had a sense of this story from the original extremely moving article you wrote in the New York Review of Books in 2021. Um, for me, as someone from the West Bank, the occupation is so explicitly defined by these systems of restriction, permits, the wall, the checkpoints, and even the unofficial restriction imposed by the threat of being attacked by settlers or interacting with soldiers at checkpoints. Um, this past summer, I actually taught some students from the Gaza Strip in the West Bank, and many of them had never visited. And even they were shocked at how restrictive the West Bank is and how constantly Palestinians are forced to interact with Israeli soldiers and settlers. And these are students from Gaza who had already seen several devastating wars and know exactly what level of violence um, the Israeli military is capable of. And, and you talk a lot about these structures in the book. Um, tell us a bit about these systems of restriction, how they manifest in the book and in the story of the book and what they might tell us about the broader context of life, specifically in the West Bank, and also about how Israel views the Palestinians. Um, thank you for that. Um, you know, before I, I talk about the systems, I, I think I'll just give a, a little bit of, um, for those who haven't read the book, um, a little bit of a sense of, of what it is. And, um, you know, the book tells uh, the story of a tragic uh, accident that uh, involved a, a group of Palestinian kindergartners from um, the town of Anatta and from the Shuafat refugee camp who um, were going to an excursion um, one uh, February morning that was very uh, rainy and they were struck by a giant semi-trailer um, that was actually on its way to an Israeli settlement quarry. 
and um, the bus flipped over and it caught fire and uh, six children and one teacher died. It was more than a half hour before the first Israeli uh, fire truck came. And I tell the story of the kids and the parents and um, the emergency service providers and the settlers who live right next to the accident site and um, social workers. And in particular, you know, one uh, father who, whose name is, is in the title of the book, Abid Salama. Um, and, you know, the book is called A Day in the Life of Abid Salama, and it does tell the story of Abid's uh, search for his son, his ar arriving at the accident site, discovering that all the kids had already been taken uh, away by um, uh, just Palestinian bystanders who um, were left on their own without the help of any authorities to rescue these kids and were putting them in the in the um, back seats of their cars and driving off in different directions depending on their own um, permits and um, ability to move, whether they could go to a better hospital in Jerusalem or not. Um, and so Abed, like other parents, came to the scene of the accident, found all the kids had been taken off by ordinary bystanders, was told all, all these different uh, accounts of where the kids were, that they're in hospitals in East Jerusalem, they're in hospitals in West Jerusalem, they're at the military base a minute up the road, they're at the Ramallah hospital. He himself has a green West Bank ID, is not permitted to enter Jerusalem. He couldn't go to most of these places. So he went uh, to the Ramallah hospital and, and we look, uh, you, we, I tell the story of Abed searching for his son at that hospital, calling on relatives who do have the ability to enter Jerusalem, who have blue Jerusalem IDs to go search for his son at the hospitals there. Um, and it's called A Day in the Life of Abed Salama, but it's really about the entire life of Abed and other um, uh, characters in the book. So we learn about the first intifada through Abed's activism, um, how he's recruited into the uh, DFLP by a brother-in-law, um, how he becomes a local leader of the DFLP and is arrested uh, during the first intifada and is tortured and um, encounters all these restrictions on movement as a a recently released prisoner who's kind of locked into a nata and can't move around. Um, and, you know, the, the, the broader kind of um, context of uh, in which this, this book appeared in, in the world on October 3rd was that um, we had an increasing uh, recognition of um, the nature of Israeli control uh, over Palestinians in the West Bank. There had been uh, reports by uh, leading uh, uh, Palestinian, Israeli, international human rights organizations, a report by the UN Special Rapporteur, all of them finding that Israel is practicing apartheid as defined in international law. And, um, you know, one of the um, needs that I felt this book could um, fill was to um, really give people a visceral sense of what that is, not a dry statistical sense, not a, a list of orders and restrictions, but really let's walk through the, the life of a Palestinian in this uh, system of control. And 
um, to do that, you really need to take people through time. And, you know, the, the theft of, of time is such a, a big part of Palestinian life in the West Bank. And you need to show what these restrictions on movement actually mean for people and particularly what they mean on the worst day of a parent's life when they're trying to find uh, their child. Um, and, and so um, that was kind of the the one of the aims of the book was really to um, allow people to understand the system in a deeper way uh, by traveling with the people uh, living through it, uh, through the story of the accident. Um, so, you know, we, we do learn about checkpoints and the wall and a segregated road that cuts through Anatta and entirely encircled uh, communities. And we learn about how, um, you know, parts of Anatta were annexed by Israel and made uh, into uh, what Israel uh, de unilaterally declared to be East Jerusalem and within the sovereign boundaries of Israel. Um, and how other parts were taken over for a military base, including Abed's family land, um, is uh, where the Anatot military base is is sitting right now, and in fact is where um, a number of reports have said uh, some of the uh, prisoners from Gaza uh, have been held, um, and uh, and and others were taken over for outposts and settlements, and so we learn through this town through Anata about all kinds of um, means of, of land uh, theft. And uh, we also learn about restrictions on movement. And we also uh, learn the stories of um, uh, Palestinian political activism, of, of, of Palestinian um, resistance in the uh, first intifada, of uh, Abed's life in the uh, second intifada, what the Oslo process meant for him and how it in fact meant a series of restrictions, actually. Um, uh, and uh, the other element is, you know, we meet, for example, um, a, a teacher, um, I'm sorry, not a teacher, a, a doctor who uh, came upon the, the site of the accident, who is a, um, a mother uh, of several uh, children. She grew up in um, a refugee camp in Syria. And because she was married to a Palestinian diplomat, she was able to be one of the few permitted to enter the West Bank during Oslo. And this was her great dream, was to return to Palestine. Her family was from Haifa and had um, been forced to flee Haifa in 1948. Um, and part of her experience was a very bittersweet one because uh, she wasn't returning actually to Haifa she was returning to a place that wasn't um, uh, familiar in any way and in which in many ways she felt like an outsider. And um, one of the struggles that she encounters is uh, just raising a child and um, seeing this child go to school uh, and be harassed by uh, soldiers outside of school every week in Abu Dis. And slowly, you know, this adolescent boy starts to throw stones with the um, other kids. And she just knows it's a matter of time before her son is arrested. And that's, I think, another kind of way in which we're shown the system of control in the West Bank is, is you know, the, the great 
uh, uh, power that Israel has over every family in the West Bank, that they can come at 1.30 in the morning as they did to this um, doctor, um, to, to the home of this doctor, and uh, take her son away and not tell her why or where he's going. And she spends uh, more than a week just trying to find the um, uh, cell in which he's being held. And um, and she uh, winds up attending the, you know, um, joke of a um, military uh, trial that he is uh, put through. And uh, like, you know, more than 99% of uh, kids accused of throwing stones, he's convicted. And um, and he spends a year and a half of his uh, uh, childhood in uh, prison. And it's the worst uh, period of uh, his mother's life. And I try and show, you know, what it actually means to um, live through that and to to not just to live through it, but to live with the fear and the knowledge that that could happen any night uh, with the snap of, of a finger. Um, so um, it's a very long-winded way of answering your question, but really the, the, the system is so multifaceted. The only way I felt that you could really understand it deeply was to take people through uh, the jaws of it. Yeah, I mean, the layers of of restriction and forms of violence and complexity that you are able to capture, I think, by telling the story of one family, and unfortunately, a story that most families in the West Bank have some analog to, um, I think is really impactful because when we say occupation, you know, that doesn't really mean anything if, if you've never witnessed it. And I think you know, just the complexity of of life there that is kind of every Palestinian marinates, it's very hard to capture uh, for a general audience. And I think you really successfully did that. And, um, you know, a sentiment that I hear often from Palestinians is that aside from the obvious theft of land and livelihood and dignity, the occupation manifests as a theft of time. And I think you're really able to capture that in the book as well. Um much of this book and the challenges, to put it lightly, faced by the people in the book has to do with the idea and the practice, really, of fragmentation and separation. And I think ultimately the dehumanization that comes with that. Um, my uncles from the West Bank tell me about how, you know, pre-Oslo just decades ago, they would easily go into Israel, do some shopping, you know, work easily without a permit, uh, visit uh, Jerusalem. These are stories that are basically unimaginable now. And most Palestinians yeah. do not see an Israeli that is not a settler or soldier. And most Israelis do not see Palestinians at all or are not forced to confront the reality of what life for Palestinians under Israeli rule looks like. Um, unless they employ a Palestinian, of course, or if there's some security incident that thrusts it into the news. Um, we're seeing now uh, such blatant rhetoric from Israeli politicians about uh, forcing displacement, about Palestinians as human animals, about how there are no civilians in Gaza. 
these kind of abhorrent acts by Israeli soldiers deployed in Gaza that they are proudly posting on social media. We even this past week saw Israelis blocking humanitarian trucks from entering Gaza. So what does this separation and the subsequent dehumanization portend for both what we're seeing now in Gaza, of course, in the West Bank, as you discuss in your book, and what it has done to any potential for uh, I mean, political settlement, yes, but also any source of justice, of 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 moving forward from this kind of sick paradigm that we have been stuck in, you know, to respecting Palestinian rights and claims to any degree. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, one of the the main um, policies that. I try to explore in the book is exactly as you say is is uh, separation and fragmentation, and um, one of the places where you can see that most clearly is uh, in the Greater Jerusalem area because this is really the heart of the settlement project. That is the uh, highest priority area. It's where uh, most of the uh, settlers live. And uh, it's where Israel has really devoted the most resources to trying build up uh, irreversible uh, contiguity, and um, and so we, we, what you see in the in that area in the area where this book takes place is you see the most uh, stark uh, segregation done, you know, almost to the level of Gaza with a wall. Uh, surrounding the main characters who live in this book. They're surrounded on three sides by a wall, even though half of this enclave, half of this walled ghetto is within the municipal boundaries of Jerusalem as Israel defines them. So you have a walled ghetto in the, in uh, uh, Jerusalem and uh, the, the three walls are made of concrete 26 foot feet uh, tall. And uh, there's a fourth wall that runs through a segregated road that cuts uh, through Anatta, which um, is known as the apartheid road. It's Route 4370. It's uh, Palestinian traffic on one side, Israeli traffic on the other. And that too has a giant wall uh, running through it. So um, you have what is today around 130,000 people in the enclave of, of Anatta and Shuafat, who um, are uh, locked in with a, a single checkpoint at the top for uh, people with blue IDs to go and to their jobs and schools. And many, many parents actually choose not to send their kids to schools in Jerusalem because they don't want their kids to go through that checkpoint day every day and uh, interact with uh, Israeli soldiers. And that's how a lot of these parents wound up sending their kids to a private school in the West Bank within this same enclave. Um, and, and so, you know, the driving um, force behind this policy of segregation is um, to have as few uh, Palestinians as possible within the heart of uh, Jerusalem while relinquishing uh, as little land as possible. So when Israel constructed the wall, 
uh, in the early 2000s. That was the guiding principle um, that dictated how it wrapped around this community and how it put roughly a third of the Palestinian population of East Jerusalem on the other side uh, of this wall. Um, so, you know, when you're talking about the present and you're talking about, um, you know, October 7th, I think that one of the things that has happened is, is um, Israelis on the one hand have felt that their technological solutions have uh, failed with respect to Gaza and this policy of separation um, didn't work. Um, but on the other hand, I think that the desire of Israelis for separation has been heightened. And um, there is, um, you know, no Israeli taker for any kind of uh, confederal uh, option or one state option or any kind of really even now just just having, you know, workers return uh, at the levels that they existed for West Bank workers, um, Gaza workers too, of course, but West Bank workers um, who uh, now have been, most of them, out of a job for the last several months. And the West Bank economy is really suffering. And, and Israel is deeply reluctant to just even allow, uh, you know, basic uh, movement of, of, of workers that it needs so the um, in the ver in the short term, I think what we are going to see is more segregation, more walls, more fences, more restrictions on movement. And when I ask uh, Palestinians in the in the West Bank, and I've asked this of Abed actually recently, I said, "Do you think this is the worst you've ever seen?" I'm sorry, I said, "Do you think this is the worst the restrictions on movement have been?" since the end of the second intifada and he said no this is the worst it's been in my life and uh every other palestinian i've asked the same question has said that too it's really uh severe right now of course i don't imagine this will last uh forever um but uh in the short run that that's really um we're, we're going to see much more uh segregation the thought of more segregation and more restriction is is really quite sobering. Um, I, I've heard every West Bank Palestinian echo the same sentiment. People who lived through 67, who lived through Oslo, the first and second intifadas saying this is the worst it's been. Um, so it's 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 a frightening thought, uh, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, there's so much focus on Gaza right now, and of course, rightfully so, um, due to the level and scope of Israel's destructive military campaign. Uh, at the same time, uh, we're seeing a really concurrent tragedy unfold in the West Bank. I think almost 400 have been killed uh, just since October 7th. Thousands have been arrested, many under administrative detention, of course, with no charge. As you just noted, the shutdowns and movement restrictions of main roads uh, has is worse than it has been. You know, many children have not been attending school. Businesses are closed. Um, it was just a few months ago that we were saying that 2022 was the deadliest year in the West Bank in years. And then 2023 surpassed that easily. 
And I can't imagine 2024 will look any better. And this doesn't even account for the um, kind of preventable indirect deaths like Abed's son that are not caused by direct violence of Israel, but instead by Israeli structural violence. Um, I feel that even the weak guardrails that existed before or, or maybe we thought existed before have essentially disappeared. And we're seeing that across the occupied territories. Is, 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 is Israel learning a lesson from Gaza that it really can do what it wants to Palestinians, wherever they are, as long as they claim self-defense and, and no one will stop them? And even if that self-defense manifests, you know, not just in bombing hospitals and humanitarian workers in Gaza, but in um, preventing medical care and family unification after a car accident in the West Bank. Uh, is Israel learning this lesson anew, or is this just a continuation of what we've seen before? Well, I, I mean, I think that the obviously the scale of what we are seeing in Gaza is like nothing we've seen uh, before. And um, I, I think that, yeah, sadly, you know, at the end of the day, what Israel cares about is that it has full U.S. backing. Uh, that's really what matters. All the other stuff is kind of chatter, the um shmoom and all the rest. Um, and, and so, you know, the U.S. has backed Israel to the hilt um, as... Uh, as it's uh, uh, raised Gaza, and uh, it continues to do so uh, to this day. So I think that, um, you know, unless Israel is thinking long term and looking at public opinion uh, in Europe and the US and, you know, what the future of the Democratic Party is and those kinds of thoughts, I mean, uh, you know, the, I think if Israel does think about the long term, it, it should be concerned about those things. But in the short term, I think absolutely, as as you imply in your question, they um, feel that they um, have the full backing of the U.S. and would have it again uh, tomorrow. And if and if they, you know, have a, a war with um, uh, Hezbollah now. As long as they are able to convince the U.S. that they didn't um, start it, basically, they'll have full U.S. backing there, too. So, of course, not just implications for Palestinians, but really regional implications that stem from this impunity that you and, and, and I and many others have written about uh, for decades at this point. Um, so I have recommended your first book, uh, which is called The Only Language They Understand, Forcing Compromise in Israel and Palestine. It was published in 2017. I've recommended it to many people in that time. Um, it's, it's a differently written book, but I think the same kind of tracing of history that's really fascinating and, of course, sobering. So the premise of the book um, is that force or the threat of force is the only real mechanism that will force any concessions on either side of this conflict. And you kind of provide a history of this paradigm in action, looking at the Carter administration and, and just multiple uh, efforts in, in the time uh, of the book. 
I wonder if your perspective on this has changed at all since October 7th with both the scale of the attack by Hamas and the overwhelming response from Israel, or if you see even more firm entrenchment of this kind of paradigm. Um, so obviously it's it's a bit early to say, you know, what how this is all going to shake out. But uh, looking at it today, uh, you know, four months into this war, I see only affirmation of the notion that um, uh, force is what brings about change. And so, um, you know, the Palestinian issue was uh, very much off of the world's agenda. It was definitely off the U.S. agenda. Uh, the Nationalist Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, famously published an essay in Foreign Affairs that in the print edition, he talks about how well they've managed the uh, Palestinian issue and everything's quiet and, you know, their real focus is on other things. And, and Foreign Affairs, to their uh, great shame, allowed him uh, to change that uh, online without a real correction. Um, and um, and so so the the idea was the Biden administration was going to achieve normalization with Saudi Arabia and Israel. Um, and the Palestinian issue was going to uh, be ignored. And, and so that uh, changed purely as a result of uh, the use of great force um, uh, by Hamas on October 7th and by Israel uh, since October 7th. Um, and then since then, you know, what we've seen is that, first of all, in Israeli politics, suddenly the Palestinian issue is the most important thing. That was also an area where it was the farthest thing from um, electoral uh, uh, politics. And whenever the last several elections, the Palestinian issue was very uh, marginal, and now it uh, will certainly not be. And and now we have um, the, uh, you know, uh, head of foreign policy for the EU saying that there should be an imposed uh, solution on Israel. It's the first time any official uh, of that uh, stature has said that. Um, we have the U.S. saying that they're going to uh, recognize a uh, Palestinian uh, state and maybe do it through a U.N. Security Council resolution with other uh, states uh, joining. Um, and um, we hear the Biden administration, again, I'm not predicting that they're actually going to bring about a Palestinian uh, state or at least a sovereign Palestinian state, um, but, um, but they are claiming that, um, that this is the only way uh, forward and they're uh, talking about it in a way that they didn't talk about it several months ago uh, and insisting that it must happen. And the Saudis now, uh, just today, said very clearly um, that uh, they will not normalize with Israel um, in the absence of a Palestinian uh, state on the 67 borders. So for me, I think like there that it's just unequivocal that we have seen uh, the movement of the international community toward the idea of forcing a uh, Palestinian state uh, on Israel, um, that idea has uh, 
gained uh, uh, new traction and um, more traction than it ever had purely as a result of uh, the violence of the last several months. It'll be interesting to see those kind of two forces, both the internal feeling within Israel that you noted about wanting more separation and more segregation and these kind of external uh, actors who are at least saying that they will, they are hoping to impose some sort of solution um, for the long term. So it'll be interesting to see those forces kind of collide in the coming weeks, months, years, who knows. Um, you've been working in this space for a long time, uh, as anyone who has been listening can tell. And right now, we kind of seem to be in a period of nothing but utter despair. Um, the level of death, the level of injustice, not just in Gaza, across the occupied territories, including the repression of Palestinian citizens of Israel, um, it just seems like an all-out assault on Palestinian life. And then, of course, there is the silencing and repression of Palestinians and people who speak out on behalf of Palestinians and their rights and their realities. Um, as I as I read, you kind of experienced at the beginning of your own promotional tour for the book. So stepping back, we're kind of looking at this from a broad perspective, what I, I know you have a lot of experience in. What are you thinking in this moment about where we've been, where we are now, where we might be headed, um, both for Palestinians, of course, but also those who advocate for them. We've seen this kind of, in my mind at least, unprecedented grassroots support around the world. Uh, we're seeing increasingly, you know, not just demonstrations, but unions uh, and organizations taking stands. We see cities voting for ceasefire when their governments won't. Um, now, I'm not asking you to predict the future. There's so many unanswered questions right now, but this really feels like a unique moment in history. And what yeah. are you what are you thinking right now? Yeah. So um, I do agree with you that this really is a um, qualitative uh, change, that this is a, a very major moment and big changes can come from it. Um, thinking just to take the end of your question, I mean, thinking about the US, I think that one thing that is enormously important is um, that for the first time, there is all this talk of a US president potentially losing uh, an election over Palestine, and over, not just over Palestine, but over being too pro-Israel. That is uh, unheard of in American politics. And the fact, you know, every American politician has always felt that you really only have a price to pay for being insufficiently pro-Israel. And now for the first time, if that there's even the idea, even if it doesn't happen, there's all this coverage now of how much Biden is hurting with young people, with his main coalition, with black voters, um, what might happen in Michigan. And uh, just the idea uh, that this is being discussed now and that you can lose an, a presidential election uh, by uh, blindly uh, supporting Israel, I think is hugely, hugely important and um, will be even more important if it actually comes to pass um, 
that that he's he's not uh, reelected. Um, and in the long run, um, you know, I, I I know it's a very hard choice for people to make because nobody wants to see Trump uh, uh, in power. But setting that precedent will be very, very uh, consequential. And um, and I'm not sure how much uh, Biden is really going to do for Palestine uh, anyway. So um, uh, so that's that's, you know, uh, one issue. The, the, the other one is, of course, the, um, the future of um, Palestinian politics, um, because that's really going to be changed uh, drastically as a result of um, the last several months. And um, now we see all the polls showing how strong uh, Hamas is, how weak the PA is. And at the same time, there's this kind of uh, conversation among US officials that's totally disconnected from reality, which is talking about a revitalized PA that will take over Gaza. So that um, the, the I think Israel will dis will discover, and the U.S. will discover, is is, is a non-starter. And basically, the options that are facing Israel and the U.S. are uh, Hamas rule in Gaza or Israeli occupation of Gaza. And and it's those are the two possibilities, and um, I also think that for the Palestinian national movement, there is um, you know we've heard so much talk about the need for unity, and it just gets becomes kind of tiresome to hear the same things over and over again. But if ever there was a moment where unity uh, could really bring uh, results, it's now. And if you could imagine a, pal a unified Palestinian front that said, for example, we are not actually going to help you uh, run Gaza, administer Gaza, do anything uh, to make this job easier for you, uh, in Gaza in the absence of X, a Palestinian state on the 67 borders phased in this way with these steps, you know, whatever it may be. But, um, but I think that there is tremendous leverage that a unified Palestinian national movement would have right now um, in demanding that if you want us to help you restore Gaza and to uh, allow you to leave Gaza, which most Israelis do want to do, um, then um, we're not just going to do that as it's not a gift to us. Uh, and so um, you you need to make some concessions. You need to start, um, uh, you know, withdrawing uh, settlements, for example, um, dismantling some settlements in the West Bank. We'd, we we want to see this as a process of our moving in slowly in Gaza as you withdraw in the West Bank and we establish a Palestinian state. I mean, I'm just throwing possible uh, uh, lines out there, but the the um, the the opportunity I think is there. The leverage is there, and um, and I am I, I hope that. Um, you know, behind the scenes, all of these discussions that are happening with 
uh, members of, of Fatah who are reaching out to Hamas now and talking to them about the future, that, that, that we can see some kind of a united national front. And, um, you know, perhaps if there's going to be a, a prisoner exchange, um, that that could be the, the basis for, um, for unity. Yeah, it's it's shocking, right, how often we can talk about what's been happening now and how little the Palestinian Authority actually comes up in such conversations when really there's such a unique role, as you say, that a unified Palestinian message could bring to the world right now that is just completely absent in discourse. Um, and I, I hope, hopeful, optimistic, pessimistic that there might be some uh, push towards that in, in the future. But, uh, as you said, it's, there's so many unknowns. Um, I, I couldn't have you without asking you about your broad perspectives, but let's just, I want to end it on a quick question, uh, about mm. your book, which is, it seems you're still in, uh, touch with Abed. How yeah. is he? Um, you know, like, like most, um, people in the West Bank, his family is um suffering right now you know the the um the main thing that's happened now is is just a total uh shrinkage of the palestinian economy i mean it is a huge uh percent of the uh workers uh in in the west bank who work in settlements or in uh, in israel we're talking about you know, roughly 200,000 uh, people, a bigger uh, employer than, than the PA. Mm -hmm. And, um, and those are the higher paying jobs. I mean, you have PA uh, members of the PA security forces who go and work in construction in Israel on the weekend. Uh, that's how big the pay uh, discrepancy is. And a, and a job in the PA security forces is one of the best jobs you can have in the West Bank. And, and so all of that has uh, disappeared, and um, it it has made for a just a, a miserable uh, economic uh, situation. He has a, a a story, a personal story on top of that that's made his own situation worse. He was working recently as a taxi driver, and a uh, police officer in the West Bank pulled him over as he was carrying a few workers uh, north. And pulled him over in the entrance to a settlement, uh, Ofra near near Ramallah, and um, and the uh, settlement, you know, security guard came and confronted the police officer and started pointing his gun at Abid and the uh, workers who were in his car and threatening them and saying he'd shoot them and yelling at the police officer for bringing. Um, a uh, Palestinian car to the entrance of the uh, settlement. And in the end, he had his license uh, taken away from him and he's extra, you know, out of work. And so it's, it is a, a very um, bleak situation in the West Bank. And when you add to that, the degree of restrictions on movement, the amount of uh, violence, both from soldiers and uh, settlers, um, it's, it's, um, it's really grim. Well, I, I wish, you know, almost 10 years after the events of your book, uh, there was some hope for Abid and so many Palestinians in the West Bank. And yet I think 
the reality is that tragedy is is a constant companion uh, for everyone who lives there. And uh, I think that you really capture that very beautifully in this book. And I also recommend uh, people check out your 2017 book, which I think is particularly resonant right now, especially as uh, we have a new slate of historians all of a sudden who perhaps need to do a little bit more reading on this topic. Um, Nathan, I want to thank you so much for sharing your time and analysis today. Thank and I you want for having me. It was a real pleasure. And I want to thank our listeners uh, for tuning into this episode of Occupied Thoughts. Please make sure to check out the FMEP website. It's fmep.org for resources related to this podcast and lots of other great content related to Palestine and Israel. Um, of course, pick up Nathan's books and please make sure you're subscribed to this podcast to stay up to date. Um, it's on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, and you can also watch video versions of our podcasts, including this one on YouTube. And with that, I am Yara Asi signing off until the next episode of MFMEP's Occupied Thoughts. Thank you. <laughs>